Hey, welcome to the last night school of the year, of the decade. Everybody's making a big deal about that. The end of the decade. It doesn't really feel like that to me. I was all amped up for 2020. I remember a year ago talking to a friend about how 2020 was going to be this big thing. But it wasn't because the the decade was ending. Just on its own, I just felt like 2020 was going to be important and little did I know uh, it's going to be a major deal a much bigger deal than I could have fathomed you know with everything going on in my life um, but it's a fitting end to the year end of the decade whatever significance you want to give it uh, it's the first really rainy and windy day we've had in a little while here and so that feels fitting feels oddly fitting uh, why that's fitting I don't know and, uh, you know, but it, it doesn't really matter whether you look at the year's end, the decade's end, the end of a minute, the end of an hour. It doesn't really matter if you look at it and you say, oh, it's just some, you know, human devised system that we all follow and it's not really that important. It's not really that important because we just came up with this uh, way of measuring time and, you know, it's all arbitrary, but it might be. It might be arbitrary, but it's really not. When you look at, you know, the Gregorian calendar and all the different calendar systems we've used throughout time, uh, I assume there's a bunch of them. I, I've, heard of, I've heard of a few of them. Uh, but, you know, when you think about those, it's like just the fact that they calculated these calendars based on, you know, seasons, based on, you know, these changes that go on in our environment. On, on changes that go on just in the sky. You know, there's something to that. And even if you want to dismiss that significance, the simple fact that this many people are putting their mental energy on the fact that today is December 31st and tomorrow isn't just January, but it's a whole new year. The fact that that many people, that so many people are all focused on this change makes it real. It makes it significant, where even if you see the whole system, the whole calendar system, the whole, the whole idea of time, even if you see that as arbitrary, just the fact that everybody has decided to focus on it and take it seriously and make it a reality makes a day like today important. It makes midnight tonight important. Uh, not that anybody's arguing otherwise, but I do feel like there's always this little element out there that's like, oh, I don't care about the new year. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Um, but I also feel like I'm doing some sort of science fiction log right now. I just finished reading Michael Moorcock, The Black Corridor. I think it was called The Black Corridor. Titles are arbitrary. It's funny how, how you can read a book and then not even think about what the title of it was while you were reading it. Uh, but in that, you know, it's a very, like, in, in Michael Moorcock fashion, very stark, but not over the top. I feel like, you know, so many things try to be kind of stark and dark, dark and stark. Uh, th there'd be good names for lawyers, dark and stark, no, but th so many things try to be dark and stark, and I feel like a lot of what I come across, new media, new material today, tries too hard, and Michael Moorcock is so good at you know, being completely dark and stark, but it's just, it's, and I don't want to say it's understated because it's there and you can't deny it, but he just, 
he just achieves the perfect amount of it where it doesn't feel like he's forcing it on you. It's just there. And I hesitated to read, you know, when I was reading, I didn't hesitate, but when I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, with everything that I've been experiencing the last few weeks, should I be reading something that is, is this harrowing? You know, it's a book about paranoia, societal collapse, space, and I'm not a huge space guy. I like looking at the sky. I like thinking about space a little bit, but, you know, science fiction that takes place in space always has a tendency to, to depress me, and this book, you know, it wasn't that depressing, surprisingly, and when I was reading it, I was like, man, is this really the right thing to be reading? And I was like, yes, because Michael Moorcock just, he, he's able to, he's, he's just able to achieve something with such a simplicity, um, I don't know. It's it's not it's not like and and you know I I am a believer in you know what you consume is going to impact you and because I've been feeling relatively well given the circumstances I was like should I be reading a book that is this uh, dark and this minimal and I, I ended up enjoying it but point being is the the character in the book the main character he uh, he has to make these logs in a spaceship where he describes what he did during the day and. I've always kind of had that feeling doing this podcast where I'm kind of, it's kind of a log, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, me giving my report, but I feel that especially right now with it being the last day of the year, the last day of the decade, and just having read this book where the character makes all of these logs, it's just a log. Welcome to my log. That was was what blogs are. If you never uh, realized that a web log, which is a cool way of thinking about it, it's cool that we were very like, you know, if you look at that objectively, I mean, we were being sci-fi characters when the internet was created and people started making blogs. The fact that people were making web logs, they were logging, you know, these reports, uh, very sci-fi. And we didn't think of it that way, because when you're in the present, you don't think, like, oh, this is sci-fi. Although people do that. People are like, oh, this new technology, VR, smartphones, it's all, we're, we're, we're aware of the fact that, you know, it's all sci-fi, I guess. But it loses the phi, and it's just sci when we are experiencing it. Uh, but anyway, like, you know, I wanted to get into sort of what I, the topic that I wanted to talk about, I feel like it kind of plays into the idea that you you can't deny the impact of the new year when everybody is focusing on it. The fact that everybody is thinking about it and verbalizing it has an impact on you whether you want to accept it or not. Uh, And I don't want to get too deep into the idea of subliminal messages and all that. Um, although this plays into the idea of like me wondering if I should be reading a really dark book right now, you know, in the way that that can seep in, because I, I have learned that, you know, consuming certain subject matter and not necessarily dark subject matter, but just anything of any nature, you know, is going to impact um, you on a deeper level than you realize. And, you know, it's a weird thing because, you know, Sometimes it's it's not just that you want to be careful what's seeping into you. Sometimes something that you want to seep in isn't seeping in. 
I mean, it might be with the new year. You might really want it to feel like a new year, but you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to feel exactly the same. Uh, But I've had that experience too when I'm reading, and sometimes your mind will just kind of gloss over what you're reading. It might be that you're distracted. It might be that you're thinking about other things, and you realize that you don't remember what the last two pages you read were. It might just be a paragraph. It might be pages. You might go on like that for pages and pages and realize you didn't take anything in. And I know when that happens, I get frustrated. I'm like, you know, I've been reading this and I just totally glossed over this. And sometimes it's not because I'm distracted and not because I'm thinking about other things. I just, my mind just kind of goes blank. And it's almost like this meditational moment where I'm just kind of I'm reading the words and I'm going through it. And it's something that everybody experiences. You know, I've heard other people talk about this. And, you know, if you're reading a story, let's just say a story, something that has a very clear narrative, like you're reading, you know, a book that is telling you a story, you don't want that. You know, if you're especially if you're reading like a fiction book, if you're reading something that is just entirely based on these events that are happening, you don't want to miss anything. I mean, you don't, you don't want to miss any aspect of that story. But I've wondered before, you know, sometimes I'll be reading something else, something that is a little more esoteric, or it'll be like some sort of spiritual subject matter, maybe philosophy, it'll be something of that nature. And I'll do the thing where my brain just sort of shuts, shuts it out, and I'm not, I'm not really taking it in or retaining it. And I wonder, is there any value to this? Is there any value to reading something and going through and not and it not directly seeping in? And I think there is. I mean, I, I think I don't want to say that it enters you subliminally, but I think there is some value to that. And I think with those subjects in particular, those subjects that are a little deeper and they're harder to get your mind around in the immediate. I think there is some value to taking them in. And I've heard something similar when it comes to, you know, like, like hearing chanting, like Tibetan chanting, uh, where you don't understand the words, but it still has an effect. And even if your mind goes elsewhere, even if it's not about the sounds that you are hearing, The simple fact that you are experiencing them does something to you or for you. It's not nothing. I think that'd be a better way to put it. It's not nothing. And the same would apply to reading, where you might not be directly taking in what you're reading. It might be washing over you in some way, but it's not nothing either. And a a really weird phenomenon that I've experienced when I'm reading is I'll be reading something, and then I realize, and this usually isn't an entire page, but there'll be a certain paragraph that I realize that I didn't read. I'll be, suddenly I'll be reading like the next paragraph, which I'm taking in, and I'll realize, oh, I didn't take in that last paragraph. I don't remember anything that was said in the last paragraph, and now I'm, I'm kind of confused. And I'll go back and I'll try to read that previous paragraph, and I find that I tune out at the exact same place. And I don't know what that is, but I find that when I go back to reread something that I tuned out, it's not just that I myself am in this distracted place, it's that I tune out at the exact same part of the book, the exact same paragraph, maybe even the exact same sentence, 
And why is that? And then when I try to do that two or three times, I say to myself, oh, I don't think I meant to read that. Or I mean, I read it, but I don't think I meant to absorb that. And not because it's like, I can't handle it. I can't handle that previous paragraph. No, I don't even think it's something like that. But it's just something, there's like almost like a frequency, and I tune out of it. Or I tune into a, another frequency. Maybe it's not a tuning out, but I'm tuning into something else at that exact moment. And I know I've talked about this on here before, but I, I had an experience growing up where I would be sitting somewhere and and I'd be very, you know, present. I'd be there. And I would look maybe out a certain window. And when I looked at a very certain, you know, when I focused on something out that window, I would unfocus. And it's very much like that idea of hitting a certain paragraph and the same paragraph making you kind of tune out or tune into something else. I remember like looking at certain things would cause me to tune out like that or tune in. And it's more of a tuning out though, because you know, your mind kind of goes a little bit blank and it would be certain spots and I could turn my head a little bit to the left and I'd be back where I was. But it, I would look out that window. And the reason why I keep saying windows is because I do remember there was a certain spot on the couch where I would sit growing up in my childhood home. And I remember we had these French doors. And it wasn't the same spot every time or anything. But I remember one single experience where I was on that couch. And every time I looked out the window at a certain angle toward a certain spot, I would kind of tune out. And there was something meditational about it. There was something where I just kind of went blank. And it, it wasn't like supernatural or anything. It was just kind of, you know, I just kind of zoned out. It would be very much what people describe as zoning out. But there was a very specific zone that would cause that. And as a kid, I was just, I remember thinking in that moment, being very aware of the fact that that was happening. And I don't know if I've really thought about that exact experience as an adult, but, you know, I have experienced it in other ways. Like I said, while reading, you know, you'll hit a certain paragraph and, and you just kind of zone out of it. Um, and the fact that it's something that you can, you can experience both with the world that you're observing, you know, the the material world looking out the window, as well as this cerebral world that you're experiencing while you're reading. The fact that you can have that similar experience in both places is interesting. But I don't want to go too deep into that because I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. Uh, I want to go back to the idea of whether there's any value to just reading or you could be watching something. I'm not a big movie guy, um, but I have had this experience when I'm watching things too. I should say that. And you think of movies or TV shows or something like that. And that's sort of a, a middle ground between a book and looking out the window. When you think about like what watching a movie is, for example. It's sort of like the halfway point between reading a narrative story of some kind and just looking at the world out a window. I mean, I don't need to get all cheesy here and be like, well, TV, a television set is really just a window. Um, even though it is. Uh, I feel really silly saying that, pointing that out. Uh, but, you know, so it's it's no surprise that because you can experience this sort of tuning out or zoning out while you're looking out a window or reading a book, it's no surprise that the middle ground, which is watching something, watching a story play out on a screen, it's no surprise that it happens then, too. 
And I think one of the reasons I don't watch a lot of movies and I don't watch a lot of TV is that it almost always makes me zone out. But sometimes it will be specific parts of this of the the show. It'll be like the same scene, and I have rewound things before to go. Oh, I missed that part. I need to rewatch that because I was zoning out, and I find that I zone out at the exact same part. I don't know if this is something other people have. I don't know if it's some like a, like a reverse tick that that I experience that only certain people experience. But it's something you know that that obviously happens. Uh, you know, I, I have no reason to make it up. I, d- I just need to make myself seem more interesting by making up this uh, zoning out thing I do. Hey, baby, you ever just look at something and zone out? Does a paragraph ever make you just zone out? Zone out? Um, but there are zones that make you do it, which is the funny part about zoning out. It's funny that the term zoning out became so popular. Um, I feel like saying that is the equivalent of being like, you ever think about how a television set is just a window? You ever think about how crazy it is everybody uses the phrase zoning out? You ever think about what it means? Um, but that's like kind of the whole idea is when you zone out, does it mean anything? You know, does reading something and not taking any of it in directly, like zoning out while you're reading, does that have any value? And in the same way that I was talking about, you know, chanting or hearing something in another language isn't nothing. Something has, it happens. Even if you're thinking about something else, even if you're in there and you're experiencing that and it's entering your, you know, your, there, there's a sensory intake going on. And that isn't nothing. Uh, so in that way, you know, kind of having something, you know, wash over you or just kind of, you know, be there as something other than nothing is going to impact you in some way. And what that impact is, it's hard to say, but I mean, it is the idea behind subliminal messages when people talk about commercials or they talk about, you know, these subtle forms of propaganda seeping in in some way. Because, I mean, the, the, the part of my brain that I like to think is sharp ever since I was a little kid was like, you know, watching TV commercials doesn't make me want to go out and buy a Baby Ruth candy bar. You know, seeing an ad for a candy bar doesn't make me want to go buy that candy bar. And then you hear it explained, and the idea is that, you know, if you see that ad enough, it's not that seeing the ad is going to make you go out and buy that candy bar. It's that if you see that ad enough, that candy bar is going to be buried somewhere deep down. Uh, A buried candy bar. (laughs) I dug up my backyard, and I found a buried candy bar. Um, But it's, it's this idea that, you know, somewhere that image of the candy bar is deep down inside of you. So when you do eventually decide you want a candy bar, that's the one you're going to go for. And I don't like thinking about advertising psychology. I feel like it's this very, like, Psych 101 thing. But Psych 101 is a lot like the idea of cliches, which I was just talking about in the last episode, where, you know, even if cliches seem annoying and obvious, which is kind of the definition of cliche, 
it, it's you can't deny them. And in that same way, you can't deny something that you know follows this psych 101, this basic psychology. You can't deny that that's important. You can't deny that the new year isn't important. Um, just because just because you feel like it's a little too basic and you'd like to imagine things are deeper doesn't mean you can completely deny it. You can't deny that advertising psychology um, works to some degree. Even if you don't feel like it really works on you, even if you feel like you're above it, even if you feel like you're above even talking about advertising psychology, let alone being impacted by it, uh, you know, it's still, it's not nothing. I think that's going to be the theme to this episode, is these things aren't nothing. They aren't nothing. But that idea of subliminal messages, you know, it's like I get kind of annoyed when people talk about that. There's a tendency for people to think that subliminal messages are all this sort of conspiratorial propaganda or they're intended to sell you something or convince you of something. And I go back to, you know, one of my favorite quotes, um, which is, you know, that history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And I think that's relevant here because I think of subliminal messages as much more chaotic than they are conspiratorial. While certainly people do conspire to put subliminal messages into things, I think that most subliminal messages are just there whether you want them to be or not, whether someone else wants them to be or not. They're just in the nature of everything that we take in. Uh, so it's it's not that people are, are lacing these... It's not that the media is laced with these deliberate messages, although, you know, there there is there there are deliberate messages placed in things, but there are also a lot of things that we take in that aren't deliberate. And I think that's what happens when you're reading a book and you're not taking any of it in, is that it's not that this book is designed to make you tune out and take in some deeper message than the words of the book are communicating. It's not that that's happening. It's that something else is going on and you are taking something from it. And it may very well be that you're just getting comfortable with the tone of the book. You know, you may not actually be intellectualizing what you're reading. It may you may not actually be processing the actual content, the narrative content, but you may just be kind of, you know, warming yourself up to what it is and I think a lot of spiritual scripture, you know, some scripture is that way, especially older material where it's hard to take in. It's hard to know what they're saying. You know, any kind of esoteric subject matter, uh, it's it's kind of hard to take in. So your first experience with it is going to be kind of just looking at it as a whole. You're basically looking at it. You're not reading it. You're looking at it. And uh, sometimes you need to approach that stuff, you know, in bite-sized chunks, you know, rather than trying to read a hundred pages of the Bible, maybe just read a chapter at a time. And something like the Bible is a good example, where if you look at that, you know, chances are most people, because I've thought about this, like having, you know, read the Bible, uh, you know, waiting until like a year and a half, a year and a couple months ago to actually read the whole Bible for the first time. And I've been reading a little bit every night since uh, for the last few months. This is now my second time reading through it. Um, but you know, I, I look back at that first experience reading the Bible and I was like, I was just looking at the Bible, 
you know, while I did take in a lot, I was also just looking at it and I was just kind of getting myself comfortable with it. And so much of it was just kind of, you know, going over my head, but something was getting in and, and that something could have just been the comfort of like, this is what it reads like. This is the flow of it, you know, and I think that's how you, you have to approach a lot of things. I mean, it could be a movie that you're watching and you don't really understand it the first time, so you need to rewatch it. And a lot of people do that. They'll watch, you know, some mind bending movie and they'll be like, oh, I got to rewatch that. I can't wait to rewatch that. It's because they had to watch it once and just take it in, just look at it. And then the next time, maybe the, it, the more subtle details will come in. And so there is value to just doing that. There is value to just looking at something. Even if you want more out of it, there is some value to just looking at it. And sometimes it's not, it's not even something that you may want to revisit. Because that's another thing, too, is you might be just looking at a book. Or you might be looking at a movie. And you never have a desire to revisit it. You never have a desire for, to analyze it any deeper or get any more out of it. And it's not to say that's a total loss. Uh, it's just one of those things. You might realize it might just be that you're bored. You know, because that's another thing in all of this. Like, Because there's this idea that if you tune out when you're consuming something or looking at something, the idea is that you're just bored by it. And there may be a different circumstance that makes it less boring. Maybe you're not in the right place for it. All of that. But it might just be that you just have no interest in something and you never will. And that's a good realization, too. It's good to realize that some things are just boring. And so you can't, <laughs> you can't disclude that from this conversation either, that some things, just no matter how many times you listen to it, it could be music, it could be anything that your senses take in, anything that you're supposed to think about. Um, it could just be that it's not for you and it is boring, but it could also be... You know, you don't. You also don't want to convince yourself that you're just bored either. I think that's the thing about it as well. Where it's, it might be that it's just boring, and you'll never actually be interested in it. And you shouldn't rewatch it. You shouldn't reread it. You shouldn't re-listen to it. You shouldn't think about it ever again. You shouldn't think about it ever again because you're bored. If you're bored, it means never think about it again. I end up thinking about the things that bore me a lot. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I do. <laughs> What are you thinking about? Oh, the things that bore me. I'm just thinking about the things that bore me. It's one of my favorite things to do. Therefore, it kind of changes. It, it makes those things not boring. Uh, but you, you can also trick yourself into thinking you're bored when you're not. Because it's something might be too dense. It might not be in the language of your time. It might not be in your language at all. And that's the interesting thing like I was talking about with chanting or with you know, hearing something spoken in, in another language. It's, you know, it can still be communicated. Something can still be communicated to you through that. And uh, I don't feel like I'm really qualified to say exactly what is being communicated, but I think you can look at the example of music where people will listen to music in other languages and nobody really questions that. Maybe some really simple-minded person is like, well, you can't understand the words. So why would you listen to it? The same sort of person who doesn't understand instrumental music. There's no human voice over this sound. Um, 
but uh you know so it's it's one of those things though where like if you can if if so many people can have that experience of enjoying music even if it's in another language or or not a language at all uh, you can see where you know taking in some sort of sound or even something written that isn't immediately understandable or something maybe you'll never understand, that can have some sort of impact too. And, uh, you know, I've had that experience where I've made it a point to read everything these days. Not read everything, uh, but I mean like, like reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead where it's like when something is written in Tibetan... I assume it's in Tibetan, but when something is just in words that I don't understand, I make sure to read them. Even though I have no idea what they're actually saying, I make sure to read them. And even going back to the the Michael Moorcock book I just finished today, uh, there are parts in that where he does some interesting things, where he spells out words or or just does creative things with with words, where he'll like he'll make shapes out of words. Uh, or he'll write out larger words, and each letter of the words is is made up of smaller words, if that makes sense. And uh, I make sure to read every... I, you know, I made sure when I was reading that to read every word that was written. Even when it's just some sort of weird aesthetic thing where he... he I, I hope I'm explaining this right, but like, for example, in that book, like there's a part where he writes out... He's, the character's having a dream or something, and he and Michael Moorcock writes out the word kill, and the K is made up of the word kill or something, you know what I mean, where it's, it, it's, it's a bunch of the word kill forming a larger letter. Um, but I made sure to read each of the smaller words within that larger letter, if that makes sense, because I'm like, th- he typed that out, that's a part of this. And even though it's not part of the narrative, even though it's just this kind of visual thing, I want to read that because I feel like it's part of the experience. Again, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. And so I want to try to take that in. Um, but it does get into sort of weird territory where it's like, what's if I can't understand it, you know, why should I take the time to listen to it? And it just, it does something. It's not nothing, it does something. That's going to be my uh, new slogan. It's not nothing, it does something. It's not nothing, it does something. But there are a lot of experiences like that. You know, I think we get so consumed by this idea that we need to be entertained or that we need to understand everything or we need to be not bored. Because how much of our lives center around this idea that I don't want to be bored? I don't want to just sit there. And so there are a lot of practices that are just based around like disengaging yourself from that way of thinking. You know, if you approach life from this perspective of like, I just want to be not bored. You know, everything revolves around boredom. Everything you do then revolves around boredom, the aversion to boredom. And that makes boredom way more possible than it would be otherwise. Um, But, uh, you know, there's this idea, though, that if you zone out, if you tune out, you must be bored. And I think the first step is when that happens to not just assume that you're bored by something. And, and to think of it as part of a, a larger process 
which I imagine is hard to do. And I don't know where I got to this point. I don't, I never read anything that was like, if you experience something that you think is boredom, just be patient. And I don't consider myself a patient person. I've been told that before, and I don't mean for this to be too self-congratulatory, but I've been told by more than one person in my life that I'm a very patient person. And that's funny because I feel so impatient. And I I think it's because it's all I know. Not, not, not that all I know is impatience, but I only know what's going on inside of me when it comes to patience or impatience. And... Patience itself to me isn't even really its own thing. Patience to me is more of a struggle against impatience. And our whole idea of patience, too, is, you know, directly related to boredom. You know, patience is basically, it basically means, it's basically like, how well are you tolerating boredom? So these things are directly related that I'm talking about, you know, where impatience is, I'm bored. I want things to move quicker. I want this to be more entertaining. I want something to happen. And then, you know, but realizing, you know, this this whole thing with boredom that I'm talking about will help you become more patient because when you realize that it's not nothing, like when you when you feel bored and you go, "Well, this isn't nothing. This is something." It makes it a little easier to be patient in that moment. And, you know, this does, I'm not going to get into meditation because I, I do have a tendency to talk about that so much. Uh, but all of this does, you know, play into meditation very closely because, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people never want to try meditating is because it's like, you mean I'm going to sit there and just be bored? Because just sitting there and not taking in any, you know, sensory stimuli is like, the definition of boredom to a lot of people. It's it's the waiting room at the DMV. Meditation in a lot of people's minds is exactly that. It's, oh, you mean I'm going to have to sit in the DMV for a half hour? You know, why do I want the DMV waiting room to, to be in my own house? That's, that's what meditation feels like. And even though they want to do it because they've read about it, they've heard about it, they know someone who meditates, they know someone who's, who's following their bliss... Oh, you're following your bliss. But even that's the funny part about, you know, the way that people talk about meditation, where it's presented as something to do to make you happier, which is funny to me. And you'll see that, like, online. If you ever look at YouTube, uh, you know, Alan Watts is a good example, or Ram Dass, or any of these people that were from that era uh, who, who gave these speeches, these lectures... The names of those videos are often like Alan Watts like gives you the keys to finding happiness and then you listen to it and it's just like the most cutting like visceral just like there's nothing in there that's like do this and you will be happy. He's basically just like slicing and dicing reality down into the finest little bits and then expanding them into this like whole unit. You know, that should be the name of the video. Alan Watts slices and dices reality down to little bits and then expands them into one total whole unit. But the names of these videos and stuff, the way these things are presented is very much in line with this whole follow your bliss. Uh, This Western take on uh, Eastern philosophy, Eastern spirituality. And that's always funny to me that the idea is that it's like meditate so that you will be entertained. Meditate so that you will be happy. 
And I do think that these things make happiness easier. They make happiness more accessible. They make happiness more accessible through the neutrality that comes from those experiences, through the equanimity. You know, because equanimity gives you more access to happiness. And uh, we think of something like equanimity, we think of it almost like boredom. It's like being at zero. It's like I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. I'm at zero miles an hour. How is that a good thing? I'm stopped in traffic. And, and we tend to think about like this, this middle point that way where it's like, well, if I want to be happy and if I'm not happy and I'm just kind of neutral, that's not okay. Even though it is the definition of okay. And we tend to think of being okay or being neutral as being closer to the negative, which it is. But we don't think of the value of that either. We don't think of the value of when you're neutral, you're not just closer to being negative, but you're closer to being positive. You're closer to being happy too. And it might seem scary that being neutral, you know, makes it more likely for you to dip down into the negative. But you have to figure if you are in a negative state, neutral is the stepping stone between that negative state and the more positive state. It's the stepping stone between misery and happiness. And we have this tendency to think, I'm miserable, I want to be happy. And it's this huge jump, and very few people are capable of making that jump. Very few people are capable of being like, I'm miserable, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and just jump straight to happiness. And that's why we get so twisted up. That's why we fail to actually become happy is because we think we just have to jump from misery to happiness and we think that neutrality or okayness is boredom and boredom to us is misery but realizing that boredom isn't nothing you know it it is maybe to some degree i mean like you can get real deep about all this and just be like emptiness is the natural state of everything blah 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 but it's like i don't even really want to go there with it because i think you can just look at boredom as you know it's the blank slate neutrality boredom it's okay and it gives you access to everything and if what it gives you access to is something bad or negative All you have to do is remember that it's easy to get back to okay. It's relatively easy to get back to that stepping stone rather than trying to jump all the way up to happiness. And that's something I've learned, you know, and it's made my life easier. And, you know, I'm currently, I don't want to make this episode about it because I would rather, I'd rather talk about other things today. But, you know, having just had the most tragic event of my entire life happen three weeks ago today. It was exactly three weeks ago today that my mom died. The most, you know, the most difficult thing I've ever been through. And, you know, knowing that being neutral and being okay and being at zero is is a gateway between misery and happiness has allowed me to actually be happy. And that's a crazy thing to say. You know, that's a crazy thing to hear myself say and not just hear myself say it, but to feel it and 
in expressing that, it's just, it's the pure feeling coming out. And that's that I have had moments of actual happiness in the past few weeks. I have been able to be happy even though I watched my mom die three weeks ago. And not I'm not happy because she died. It's, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to me. It's 100% the worst thing that's ever happened to me in terms of loss. I'll say that. And the happiness that I've felt has come from the opportunity. The happiness has come from her death in a strange way, too. I'm not happy because I lost my mom because I loved her. And, and she was so important to me. And that loss is immeasurable. And I will spend the rest of my life aware of that loss. But the fact that her her death has made me so aware of the opportunities available to me, and it has already created situations and interactions and epiphanies, and not even on a personal level, but between people. Because I think that's the big thing, too, and that's, you know, the real gift my mom had is to, you know, her interaction with people and the fact that her death has created these interactions with people and has done something to the relationships that the people she knew had with each other. You know, something like that. How could you not be happy about that? And I'm definitely not sitting around feeling ecstatic. You know, there are some long, lonely moments in all of this. It's strange overall. That's like the, the the most common feeling I've had, especially recently, as some of the buzz has died down, you know, is is more a feeling of strangeness than anything. So I'm not sitting around just happy all the time, but the fact that I can even feel happy at all, having been through this and going through it right now, I do attribute that to the fact that, you know, I see neutral as a desirable state. And if you can transform boredom into that neutrality, wow, that's a, that's a, I wouldn't call that a weapon, but I would call that a tool. That's going to help you in every single situation you can encounter. I don't, I don't want to be overconfident in all this and say that like, this is always going to serve me or I'm always going to be able to achieve the level of, um, balance that I'm even able to right now. And I don't want this to be self-congratulatory at all. But I am at the epicenter of a powerful, sad, you know, uh, it's just, it's so many different things. But I know that since I discovered that, you know, seeing this equanimity, seeing this neutrality, seeing this okayness as something other than boredom or a slippery slope to feeling miserable. Because I think that's kind of what we see. We see boredom and we see neutrality and we see zero as a slippery slope to misery. But it's also, you know, the ascendant path toward happiness or other positive emotions. Because I think there's a lot more to life than happiness. You know, I, I don't think of myself as a generally happy person. I don't think of myself as you know, someone who really pursues joy. But I recognize that there's this like kind of catch-22 or almost this contradiction where there are these other desirable states that make me happy. Therefore, happiness does end up coming through. 
So even though happiness itself isn't something I desire and I wouldn't consider myself a happy person, it's like achieving these other things, achieving these other states of mind do make me happy. So in the end, some form of happiness is important to me. And when I'm doing the things that I want to do, I guess I am happy. So it's just this funny thing. And you can slice and dice that all you want. Uh, and be like, well, what does it truly mean to be happy? And uh, I think that's part of the problem, too. In the same way that we prescribe this meaning toward boredom, we do the same thing with happiness, we do the same thing with misery, and it goes back to the idea, too, of, you know, there's a difference between pain and suffering, and even when you're in pain, you can distance yourself from the suffering. And this experience that I'm going through right now, I do feel pain. But I guess, you know, where my my own practice has taken me, where my focus has taken me, is away from the suffering of that. And there's some suffering that seems unavoidable, and there are moments of suffering, but I think you have to think of suffering that way as a, as a momentary experience. And you might not be able to take the pain away, but you know you can recognize that the suffering itself is temporary. And when you do that, you steer upward toward that neutrality, and that's an important part of this, too, is realizing that, you know, neutrality is an upward slope from misery, and it's a downward slope maybe from happiness, but when you realize that it, it's an upward slope and a downward slope, it kind of changes your entire perspective on up and down and left and right and all of that, and, and I could really go off and not even know what I'm saying if I keep going in that direction. Is the direction up or down or left or right, or what is it? Uh, but it's an interesting thing, and I don't know. I kind of went off here. I wasn't planning on talking about all of this. Uh, I was just going to kind of talk about how, how sometimes you'll zone out while you're reading or this or that. And something else I want to say about that, just to return to the idea of reading and studying. Because if you're studying, you don't want everything to wash over you unless you're totally prepared to read something multiple times. And like I said, it might be your first time reading something. It really is just looking at it. It might just be, I'm going to look at this, and I'm going to take in just a word or an idea here or there. But if you get one idea from something, even if you read a whole book and there's only one sentence that you remember or only one thing that you even noticed... Once again, it's not nothing. Once again. So that idea is important, too, where it's like, you know, how often do you go into situations and feel like you got nothing out of it? I mean, that happens all the time. Sometimes you truly are bored. Sometimes something is truly of no value to you. And you, no matter what you do to condition your thinking or your brain, it doesn't matter. Because it's like, I'm not going to get anything out of that. So the fact that you got through a whole book and you had one sentence, one epiphany, one little fact that you can tell somebody, that's important. It's not nothing, once again. So you can't see that as a total loss. Just because you weren't gripped by every single page, every word, being able to get one thing out of it. And that's something I realized about people, too, where... Uh, I know I've talked about this before, famous last words. I know I've talked about this before, 
in another episode. Uh, but it's it's the same thing as taking some sort of insight from someone you don't like or someone that you think you hate. It's taking some little bead of insight from somebody who you don't want anything from. It might be, you know, somebody famous, it might be just someone in your personal life, it might be a coworker. And if some sort of insight or something that you can use is able to travel across that wide gap, the wide gap of dislike or hatred or whatever it is you think you feel about that person, if an idea is able to travel across that chasm and actually impact you and you can use an idea from that person, that's huge. And I would say the same applies toward reading something or watching something where if an idea, just one idea can be of use to you, that's something. And it might be a book and you're bored the whole time, but there's one little bit you can remember. Um, but, you know, if you're studying something, and I mean, there's certain situations where, if say, you're studying for school, you know, you don't want to have to read something three times. You don't want to have to you know, yeah, it's like you, you have to, you know, write a paper about a book and it's like you don't have time to read the book three times in a week and yet every time you look at it, it just washes over you. And I had that experience a lot, especially in college, where they'd assign some book and it was truly boring to me. I might be interested in the, the greater subject matter of the class, but reading that actual book is just like, fuck, I can't, I, I can't get into this and I can't read it multiple times just on the off chance that the third time I read it, it's actually going to stay in my mind. And so that's where writing things down comes in handy. And I have this funny experience where when I write something down, I end up remembering it without having to reference the note. And I'll think to myself, well, why did I write it down? Because I remembered it anyway. But I think there's something to that. When you write it down, it does sear it into your brain more. So even though you might not need to reference the written note, the act of writing it down does something. It brings it into reality, even though you're just going to end up pulling it from inside of your own brain later. So that's sort of a catch-22 in a way, where it's like, well, I didn't end up needing to reference this note that I wrote, but the process of writing it made me remember it without the note. And that's funny. That's funny to me, because that's almost always my experience when I write something down. It might not be something I'm, I'm reading either. It might be just something that comes to my mind on its own. I might come up with an idea for something, and I'll think, oh, I want to remember that. And I'll write it down, and in writing it down, that causes me to be able to remember it, even though I don't need to reference the written note. Not too much more to say about that. I just I find that interesting how... We're able to do that, and I, I feel like you can use that in other ways, too. I mean, you can use it for studying, for one. If you're reading a book and you're just not able to take anything in, writing down one little note can help you. Uh, and from that one note, you can find other notes. Writing down that one note and having something that sticks out in your brain because of that might lead other things to stick out. I don't know. Uh all this is interesting to me, though, and it, it all goes back down to, you know, how you condition your mind. And some of it's natural. I mean, I think some of your mental conditioning is just how you are. But I used to rely on that way too heavily. I used to think, I'm a cynical person. I'm a negative person. 
And if I don't verbalize that, if I don't express that in some way, I'm somehow denying the truth. And, uh, you know, there is a truth out there. You know, it's not like the truth is, is some totally meaningless, totally subjective thing. And I'm not going to get into the different ways that you can define the truth because I don't even know. Once again, I'll quickly not know what even I'm talking about if I get into that. The truth, it's like up and down and left and right. Uh, it just depends on how you're looking at it. You know, you could easily get lost in that subject and it's not a fun exercise to get into. Uh, but there was this idea that I used to have where I was like, if I don't speak what I think is the truth, somehow the truth won't be known or somehow I'll be lying to myself. And over time, I've just realized, you know, I don't need to do that. If something comes to my mind and I decide not to say it or not to express it or not to think it, because I think that's an p- important part of this too. Is you can choose to not even think it. You can feel the, you can feel the impulse. You can feel it coming on. Like it still happens to me if I'm out and about, where I'll see a person do something and it pisses me off, or I, I can. It doesn't. It's not that it pisses me off. I can feel the the little like. I can feel something starting to burrow. Like if I see someone who doesn't use their turn signal, I can feel this little. I can feel the potential to get mad. And I just go, no. No. And sometimes I literally say no. In my head, usually. I don't usually say it out loud. But when I feel something like that coming on, something, because I mean, in my, I think that's the great, the best example I could use is the turn signal thing. Because, like, when someone doesn't use their turn signal, especially if it's disruptive in some way, like you have to slam on your brakes because you didn't expect them to turn, uh, or they get they cut you off and they didn't use their their signal. The truth is they should have. You know, if you want if if you want to define truth, truth means that if you're changing lanes, you should use your turn signal. That's the truth to me. Hey, you know, you want to know what truth is where I live? You can talk about your you you know your books, all this fancy stuff, but truth to me means if you change in lanes, you better use your turn signal. Uh, and so there's a part of me that feels like the truth is that. In that moment when I'm driving and someone gets in front of me without using their signal, the truth is they should have done that. And it's easy to be like, well, because that's the truth, what do you do, what do, you do in response to that? You get mad, and, and that's you know acknowledging the truth. To acknowledge the truth in that moment is to get mad at someone for not using their turn signal. And when you decide not to get mad, and you do have to decide, I had to decide, I had to, it was kind of a slow process for me, like, I used to honk at people and get real mad if they did that, and there's something about turn signals in particular that I've always been really sensitive to, because to me, it's just, it's one of those, it's almost like the most basic form of conscientiousness, it's like the most basic form of respecting your fellow human being when you're all on the road, your turn signal. It's just like the most basic form of acknowledgement and respect that you can give fellow drivers. And uh, so, you know, 
in that way, it's like turn signals are the best example. But for me, it was a gradual process where like I used to get more angry, like immediately angry about it. And then I started to do this thing a few years ago where I would hold my middle finger down below the dashboard where it couldn't be seen. And it was in my head, it was like, I, I of course didn't think in these terms at all then, but looking back at it now, what I was really thinking was just acknowledging the truth. The truth is they should have used their turn signal and I have to acknowledge that. And I, I didn't get like unhinged. I didn't, there was no road rage. I would just subtly hold my middle finger and it would amuse me. It wasn't like completely angry, completely hateful. It was just this like little thing I was doing where it was almost like I just have to acknowledge this with a, a subtle middle finger. I'm not going to hold it up so that people can see it. I don't want to provoke anything. I don't want to make a big deal, but I'm just going to hold my middle finger below the steering wheel or below the dashboard where nobody can see it so that I know. But then over time, that started to feel more ridiculous where I was like, this is silly. The only person who's seeing this middle finger is me, and it's purely about my own pride because, you know, I, I'm acknowledging the truth that people should use their turn signal when they change lanes. And now I don't do anything. I notice, again, I, I, and I feel the impulse. When I see somebody who doesn't use their turn signal, I notice it, but I notice it less. And even though I feel that little thing tugging at me, it tugs at me less and less. And I don't think there will be any point where I don't notice at all. But back when I used to get mad about it, I noticed it every time. And I didn't just notice it, I looked for it. I would look up ahead and I would see cars that were way up ahead of me on the freeway or, you know, cars that were nowhere near me that had no immediate impact on my, on me and my car, I would see them not use their signals and I would get mad because they were doing that somewhere. And I would look for it. And we do that with a lot of things. We look for it. And, and so realizing that not only do I, have, do I not have to look for it, I don't have to acknowledge it. And just because I'm not acknowledging it doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make it less true that people should use their turn signals. They should, obviously. <laughs> uh, but I realize that I don't have to stage my little protest with my middle finger below the dashboard. I will notice it because I'm an aware person and I believe in safe driving and if I'm not noticing it, that probably means I'm not driving well. That probably means I'm distracted while I'm driving. And that's something, too, where let's just go full circle here before I close this out and say that the same thing that happens to your brain when you're reading a book and you realize you're not taking anything in happens while you're driving, too. You can drive, you know, great lengths and realize that you don't remember any of it. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that means you're just totally in the moment and you're driving well because you're, you're, you're almost in a flow state while driving and that's going to help your reaction time. It means you're not distracted by anything going on, by the music, by your thoughts. But it can also be really dangerous. Sometimes it means you are bored. And so in the same way that you should know the difference between, you know, whether... In the same way that when you're reading, you should try to figure out whether, okay, am I taking this in just in an indirect way? Like, am, in, in reading this book, am I getting something from it? 
I just don't realize what that is. I think you should be able to do the same thing while you're driving where it's like, am I not paying attention because I'm bored or am I paying so much attention that it almost feels like I'm bored because things are coming to me in a different way than I typically think about them. And I don't know, this is getting too out there. Once again, we're, we're going into the up, down, left, right. What is truth? And as I said, truth means using your turn signal. At the end of the day, like that's that's like the most basic boil down of what the truth is to me. It's using your turn signal. This episode, you know, I don't know whether this episode was up, down, left, or right. I don't know if most of what I said in this episode was truly true. But if there's one thing you can take from this episode, it's that using your turn signal, that's the most basic form of truth. And acknowledgement of the truth that you can possibly give in this life. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave this golden land to me and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children